Lucas was talking about the value of this community. And, um, you know, maybe you're coming here um, and you're feeling like things are going on all cylinders in your life right now. Really hitting on every, everywhere it should. And maybe you're coming in here on your hands and knees. You know, you're crawling in here. Well, I can assure you that wherever you are, that God wants to meet you right where you are, exactly where you are. And Lucas was talking about the things that we do here. Why do we spend time in the Word? Why do we take this time to study the Word together? It's because the Word and the Spirit are what strengthen us and they transform us into the image of Christ. That's the goal, that we would step by step become more like Jesus, and we can't do that ourselves. We struggle with that. But the Holy Spirit is able to work through the Word and the Spirit and this community to help us toward that goal. So that's why we're doing this. And we've been in uh, the Old Testament. Uh, we've been in the minor prophets, the, what's called the post-exilic prophets. Donnie's been doing a great job teaching us uh, through the book of Zechariah. And the post-exilic prophets simply means that after the exile, in other words, after Israel was sort of ejected from their land for 70 years, uh, they all came back. Not all of them, but, but a, a lot of them came back. And so you can imagine that this is a time of new beginnings, right? Kind of like where we are, isn't it? There's new things that were going on. The, the, the nation was sort of being reformed. And so God sent these prophets at a crucial time to speak into their lives and to speak truth into their lives. And how much do we need to hear that same truth? So uh, we're going to be taking on today Zechariah chapter 6. And there's sort of two pieces to this chapter, okay? The first piece, we're going to look at Zechariah's eighth and final vision. Donnie has taught through visions one through seven. He had like eight visions in a row. Some of these are kind of hard to understand. But we're going to look at the eighth vision. And then the second part of chapter six, it's kind of interesting because Zechariah is asked to manufacture something, to make something. And it turns out to be a very important symbol. So we're going to talk about that. And I think these two things kind of tie together. So I've titled this message heaven and earth. We tend to think of heaven and earth as separate. Well, earth is where I live and where I work and where I do my thing. And heaven, well, yeah, that's someplace I'm going someday. And there's some truth in that. But the biblical worldview is different from that. The biblical worldview, especially what we see in the Old Testament, in this, uh, throughout the Old Testament, is that heaven and earth are locked in warfare. Heaven and earth are locked in a conflict that we can't see. There's a cosmic supernatural war going on between heaven and earth that impacts nations, it impacts individuals, it impacts the church, and so in this first vision, 
uh, I should say the last vision of Zechariah, vision number eight, I think that we get a little glimpse of this, of this invisible battle going on. Before I get to that, I want to mention something from one of the earlier visions that I think will tie in with what we're going to talk about today. And I want to mention it because to me it seemed a little bit odd. Do you ever read the scriptures and you're like, that seems a little strange to me. That seems odd. I was reading a, commentary, a commentator who said, in his judgment in the scriptures, if it's weird, it's important. <laughs> I kind of like that. Well, this is an odd comment. So it happened when Zechariah had this vision of this fantastic lamp thing. I don't even know how to describe it. Donnie did a good job of doing it better than I could. There's two olive trees and there's spouts coming out of the top and there's golden oil flowing into this big bowl and the bowl is feeding all these lamps. And so Zechariah has an angel next to him who says, what do you see? And Zechariah says, what is that? Same thing you or I would say, right? What is that? The angel says, don't you know what that is? No, I have no idea what that is. And then a little later, Zechariah asks a more specific question. He says, so what are the olive trees? And what are the branches at the top? You know what the angel says again? Don't you know what these are? I found that a little bit odd. And as I reflected on that, it occurred to me that the angel was having a hard time grasping the level of Zachariah's spiritual blindness. To the angel, it was perfectly obvious. And Zachariah was, what is this? And it made me think of the fall the fall in the Garden of Eden where we separated from God and we died physically, but we, you know what? We also died spiritually. Physical death came into the world as well as spiritual death and spiritual darkness. And yes, as believers in Jesus Christ, by his cross, by his resurrection, by the coming of the Holy Spirit, when you receive Jesus Christ into your life, your body becomes a temple of God, and this is reignited, your spirit is reignited. But you know what? The spiritual discernment, your ability to understand spiritual things isn't just downloaded to you when you become a believer, right? It's a process, and we have to learn and I think exposing ourselves to Scripture allows us, allows the Holy Spirit to help us gain this spiritual insight. In the Old Testament especially, there's a lot in the Old Testament about what's going on behind the scenes. And it's just little glimpses here and there. It doesn't make sense all the time. It's kind of little pieces. But it helps us see what's going on behind the scenes. So... Let me pray and let's read this first section of Zechariah. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus asking for revelation, asking for you to meet us where we are and use the word in our lives. There's nothing I'm going to say, Lord, that can make any difference, but what you say, what your spirit says 
makes all the difference. So we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, here's what Zechariah sees in this final vision. Now I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains. And the mountains were bronze mountains. With the first chariot were red horses, the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot strong dappled horses. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my Lord? The angel replied to me, These are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. So right away, we see chariots and different colored horses coming forth from between these mountains. Now, does that remind you of anything? Remember the very first vision that Donnie taught about? There were horses, right? Individual horses and individual riders, angelic riders that were patrolling the earth. So there's a connection between this vision and the first one. And it says that there's chariots coming out from between the mountains. Well, what's up with that? What does that mean? Well, I think we have to kind of put ourselves in the place of an ancient person and ask, well, what did a chariot mean to a person living in that day? Right? We have to think like that. Well, the chariot meant one thing to a person in that day, I believe, and that was war. Chariots were developed in about 1700 BC as a weapon of warfare, and they were used for almost 2,000 years. And they were very strategic in, in these battles on the open plains. The chariots were uh, a strategic weapon of war. In our day, you know, the, the, this week, right, the German leopard tanks have been in the news a lot. Have you read about that, where they're being sent over to Ukraine? And Ukraine is saying, wow, you know, this is a huge strategic weapon for us to get these tanks. So if we were to see this vision, maybe God would have tanks coming forth from between these mountains. But the idea is warfare. And you remember from the first vision with the individual horses, what did God say? He said that he was angry with the nations who are at ease, that he was jealous for Jerusalem. In other words, he was passionately wanting to defend Jerusalem. So there's a sense in that first vision that something's going to happen. And now in this last vision, these chariots go forth. So Zechariah says, well, what are these chariots? And the angel says, they're four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. Well, again, the Bible isn't real specific in giving us, okay, these are the rankings of these beings and uh, giving us an outline. We just get glimpses. But I think we can say reasonably that it seems that God is sending forth from his presence some high-ranking spiritual beings, because they're in his presence, in the context of war. Okay, so let's continue on. With one of which the black horses are going forth to the north country, the white ones go forth after them, while the dappled ones go forth to the south country, when the strong ones went out, they were eager to go patrol the earth. And he said, and notice the capital H, okay, the translators are saying this is God speaking, 
I think there's a good reason for that. He said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he, again, capital H, God, cried out to me and spoke to me saying, see, those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. Okay, what's that all about? There's sort of a focus on the north country, right? Two of the chariots go north. And God is talking about his anger being appeased in the land of the north. Well, the first thing I think we have to understand is that the land of the north in the Old Testament was a literal place, but it was also a deeply rooted symbol. It was a symbol of rebellion against God, a symbolic place of rebellion. Reason being the Tower of Babel, right? This tower that was raised up against God. Where was that located? It was located in the land of Shinar. Shinar is Babylon. That's in the north, right? In the vision number seven, just before this one, remember uh, when Donnie was te teaching about the woman that symbolized wickedness and she was thrust down in this sort of large basket thing, which is strange, and a lead cover put on her and she was flown away. Where was she flown to? She was flown to the land of Shinar. Same place as the Tower of Babel, Babylon in the north. And there was a temple for her and a pedestal for her, this wicked symbolic being in the land of the north. Jeremiah wrote this in 6.1, evil looks down from the north in great destruction. So these literal countries, Assyria, then Babylon took them over, then Persia took them over. These are literal countries, but there's also this idea of the enemies of God, those that are not responsive to him being there. So this, these chariots are going forth to the land of the north and God says they've appeased my wrath. What happened? Well, it sounds like, doesn't it, that these angelic beings were actually involved against a nation, right? If they've appeased God's wrath and he was angry with the nations, it means that these angelic beings were somehow involved in a warfare that impacted a nation. And so it's interesting that in the book of Daniel, we actually get a glimpse of this. So Daniel lived in Babylon. And he lived in Babylon for a long time. And he lived in Babylon at the time that Babylon fell, okay? When Babylon was conquered. And what this is the night that it happened, what we're about to read in Daniel chapter 5. And king, the king was Belshazzar. He was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And he decided, he threw a big party for a thousand of his nobles, and he said, you know what? We're going to use the vessels of the great God of Jerusalem for our drinking party. So they went and took the golden vessels that had been seized from the temple in Jerusalem, and Belshazzar and all of his people were drinking out of these vessels. So this is what happened in verse 4. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So it wasn't just drinking out of these vessels. There was a praising of idolatrous beings. 
Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale. His thoughts alarmed him. His hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. Things are not going well for this king. There's a hand that appears writing on the wall, and the hand is writing a judgment. What does the judgment say? Your days are numbered. You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And your kingdom has been divided from you and given to the Persians. Daniel came in and interpreted that writing for the king. It's interesting that the secular historians recording what happened to Babylon, they report that it fell very suddenly. And so this very night, the king was assassinated and then Babylon fell. So I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, okay, the fall of Babylon, this looks like there was some sort of angelic beings involved in this thing, right? This hand appears writing out a judgment on the wall. Heavenly warfare impacting an earthly kingdom. We need to think about that. Daniel gives us some more really fascinating insight into this subject that we're talking about in chapter 10. Daniel had been fasting for three weeks. He was reading the book of Jeremiah and was wanting to understand. He was praying for insight to help him understand the book of Jeremiah. And so this angel comes to him. And what does the angel say? Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart on understanding this and humbling yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. So this angel is saying, I was delayed in coming as an answer to your prayer for insight. I was delayed for 21 days because I was battling the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And then Michael, who is identified as an archangel in other parts of scripture, came to help him. So it seems pretty clear that this was an angelic battle fighting in a geography that is connected to various nations. It seems that there are like rulers that are involved over these nations. And isn't, the amazing, isn't it an amazing thing that with all this going on, this angel was going to leave in answer to one individual's prayer. What is the impact of your prayer life? What is the impact of my prayer life in the spiritual realm? So it isn't just the Old Testament that tells us this story. Here's what Paul has to say to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, 
against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And in this passage, Paul is connecting this to a very personal warfare. Because in this section, he's talking about putting on the armor of God to protect us against the warfare of the enemy against us. Now we know as believers in Jesus Christ, that he decisively won this battle. At the cross, the powers of darkness were finally defeated. Death was defeated. He won. The resurrection destroyed any hope for the powers of darkness. But the question for us as believers in Jesus Christ is, I think, Am I living out of a biblical worldview? What weapons are being used against me that I'm not recognizing as spiritual warfare? For example, let me give you an example. What was the first weapon that Satan used against Adam and Eve? Lies, right? Lies. What about if you start believing something false about God that isn't true, that isn't scriptural? How damaging is that? What about if you start believing something false about yourself? I went to Phil's class this morning about your identity in Christ, believing truth about yourself. And what about others? Sometimes we can assign things, assign motives to other people that we think is true, but it isn't true and it impacts our relationships. What is the role of the church in this, in this battle that's going on? Well, the scripture teaches that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so wherever believers go, the power and the presence of God goes, right? So think about the impact of the church on dark places in this world. Do you know that grace is making such an impact right now? Do you know that we have two of our families serving in a place where the church really doesn't exist? And they have brought the presence of God to a dark place in this world. It isn't easy for them. We need to remember them, pray for them, encourage them. This is a tremendous work. God cares about the nations. He cares about these places where there's darkness reigning, these geographical places where there isn't the light. There used to be a slogan from Hallmark Cards back in the day when people used to send cards. <laughs> and it was, when you care enough to send the very best. Remember that? That was their slogan. I feel that way about our team serving in this foreign country when you care enough to send your very best. These are a couple of our best families. We need to be praying for them and encouraging them in every way we can. Okay, now, we're gonna wrap all this up at the end, but I wanna shift gears and, and, and talk about this other thing that happens to Zechariah. The visions are over, and now something else comes up. Zechariah chapter 6, starting at verse 9. 
the word of the Lord also came to me saying, take an offering from the exiles, from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, and you go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived from Babylon. Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Well, isn't this an interesting way for God to speak? He just finished giving Zechariah a bunch of visions, and now he says, I want you to go make something. And so he names these four people. These are people that presumably are men of wealth that have just recently come from Babylon. And he says, I want you to go to these specific men, he names them, and get an offering. And then I want you to take that and, wear, and, and, and manufacture a crown out of it and place it on the head of Joshua, the high priest. Well, that's a little bit weird because high priests didn't wear king's crowns. They had other headgear that they were supposed to wear. So this is a strange thing that happens. And then Zechariah is to say to Joshua this statement about a, someone, a man whose name is Branch, will build the temple of the Lord. Well, what is this? This idea of a man named Branch is a clear messianic reference. And it isn't Christians that came up with that idea. It's the Jewish people that were expecting a Messiah. They saw passages like this and said, wait, somebody's coming. And in this case, someone whose name is Branch will come and build the temple of the Lord. Let's, let's finish this passage here. Verse 13, yes, it is he, Branch, who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. So peace between the offices of priest and king. Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to these four guys. I won't say their names again. <laughs> Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. So we know from this, someone named Branch is going to come and build the temple. He's going to bear honor. He's going to sit and rule on the throne. He's going to be a priest on his throne. He's going to unite the offices of priest and king. Um, what's up with that? If you think about it from the standpoint of Zechariah, this had to be really confusing, okay? Well, the Jewish people saw this and they expected a Messiah. Some Jewish people expected, some sects expected three Messiahs because they saw that there was going to be a king, there was going to be a priest, and there was going to be a prophet. So some of them thought there was going to be three Messiahs coming. And then the part about the temple. Who's going to build the temple? Remember, at this time, the temple was being rebuilt. Okay, so outside the window of this room, there are people working on the temple. They were about halfway through. And so then Zechariah says, someone named Branch 
is going to build the temple of the Lord. And then he says at the end, uh, those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. So who's building the temple of the Lord? It's being built outside, but somebody tells me somebody named Branch is going to build it. And then people who are far off. So you can see how for the people of that day, this didn't make any sense. They couldn't see it. But what about us? Can you see the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy in Jesus? This incredible fulfillment? Where Jesus has united the offices of king. He's king of kings. He's our high priest. He was a prophet, prophet, priest, and king. We're united in him as the Messiah. He will build the temple of the Lord. Well, Jesus came as God in the flesh. He referred to his body as the temple of the Lord. And then what happened with us? When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you become the temple of the Lord. So through Jesus, the temple is no longer made out of stone or wood. It's made out of human beings like us. We are the temple of the Lord. Peter says that we are like living stones, a building Okay, so how do we sort of pull all of this stuff together and figure out how can this apply to me? What can I draw from this? How can I allow the Spirit to transform my life through this uh, exposure to the Scriptures? Well, two things. First of all, I think we need to ask ourselves, how do I cultivate a biblical, supernatural worldview in my life? Do you know that our culture is anti-supernatural? Really? Uh, everything has a natural explanation. This world happened just by accident. There were these forces that came together. There's no God. There's no supernatural. Everything has a natural origin. And so I think we need to, first of all, face the fact that you and I have been affected by this, that we all, if we're in this culture, have a tendency to disbelieve in the supernatural. And yet God is saying... The biblical worldview is telling us that there's a supernatural warfare going on that's affecting our personal lives, that's affecting us as nations, as people. Well, how can we live if we live in denial of that, if we don't see that, if we aren't praying accordingly? And this is where the scriptures come in. The scriptures are our window into true reality, not our culture. Another thing that I think stands in our way is I think we have some of us, and if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably experienced this. We have to face into the hurt that we carry from unanswered prayer. Have you ever prayed for something supernatural to happen, something important, maybe a healing, and it didn't? The answer didn't come. 
I've had that happen. I've been through that. Almost 10 years ago, my first wife, Liz, died from cancer. I prayed. We prayed. For a supernatural answer. I think we need to deal with that. Because what it can do to you, and I had to wrestle through this, is to say, well, why? Well, what I've concluded is, my life is built on the truth of what's in the word of God. It is not built on my experience. My experience is what it is, but it doesn't interpret truth. It doesn't necessarily reflect truth. And I remembered that Jesus, in his own hometown, it says, was unable to perform miracles because of their unbelief. So there was these circumstances that made it impossible for that miracle to take place, right? And the disciples tried to heal an epileptic boy, and they couldn't, and they didn't understand why. And Daniel was praying for an answer for insight to Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, and there was a delay in that answer. Why? Well, there was an unseen battle going on between these angels that was so far from his mind, he had no idea what was going on. So I think that we have to recognize that there's so many things that we don't understand in terms of our own experience. It doesn't rule out miracles. It doesn't rule out God working in fantastic, supernatural ways in our life. And so we've got to begin to believe in what the scripture is telling us the biblical worldview is. And we've got to reject this idea that the supernatural doesn't exist or that all oh, these are just coincidences and accidents and everything like that. And those things certainly, you know, experiences happen. But God is alive and well, and he most certainly is a supernatural being. And he wants to do transformative things in our lives that we can be a part of. But if we disbelieve that, and we become essentially a naturalistic Christian, we're going to miss out. We're going to miss what God wants to do in our lives. So beyond that, <clears throat> how do we look at this world? With a supernatural worldview. Well, we need to care about dark places on this earth. You know, there, there's a, some of you may remember a singer by the name of Keith Green, um, late 70s, early 80s. If there was a guy that I would say has the New Testament gift of prophecy, it was Keith Green. And he wrote this song called Asleep in the Light. And it says, one of the lines says, the world is sleeping in the dark, but the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so numb not to care if they come? In other words, the nations, the dark places of the world, how can you be so numb not to care if they come and you close your eyes and pretend the job's done? Wow, that'll put a blister on you. But it's true. And so... Um, we have the privilege of being involved and caring about unreached people. 
And we need to continue on. Second application point here. What tasks has God given me to take action on? To engage my gifts and to bring honor to him. These four men were specifically called on by God to give an offering so that this crown could be made that would symbolize the Messiah and this crown is placed in the temple and so everybody that goes in sees this crown in the temple. What's that? There's a reminder of what is God's ultimate solution. God's ultimate solution to all of this spiritual warfare, all this spiritual darkness was in the Messiah, symbolized by that crown, and these guys got to give gold and silver to be a part of that. What is God asking you to do? What's he asking me to do? You know, the gifts are in such a huge variety, and sometimes nobody knows. It isn't like your gift is, is public. Sometimes there are things that you do that nobody knows about. <clears throat> and I'm going to close with this little story. You guys ever heard of John Wesley? Charles Wesley, his brother. Um, George Whitfield, famous evangelist from England. He was as well known as Billy Graham in his day. Ever heard of the Methodist Church? <laughs> the revival in the 1700s that was really brought about by this Methodist movement. We've heard of most of those people <clears throat> in that church. Um, have you ever heard of Selena, the Countess of Huntington? No, no. She was a wealthy noblewoman in England who George Whitfield said her heart is all aflame for Jesus. She simplified her life and she started to give. She was a financial supporter of Wesley's. She was a financial supporter of Whitfield. She supported itinerant ministers throughout England. She supported these guys that come over here to be the spark plug for the great awakening in the United States. She built 64 chapels for worship. She built a biblical school for people to learn the scriptures. She spent in her lifetime the equivalent in today's money of 25 to 30 million dollars. But we've never heard of her. She insisted in her will that no biography would be written of her. There's a part that God has given you to play and me. And it's an exciting thing to think about what that is and then let's take action. Let's engage our gifts. Let's look for opportunities. Let's ask God what he can do with what I've got because you have something and it's exciting to think about what this body can do together. This community where everybody is doing their part. You know, to me, it's a really significant thing spiritually that we are going to be building our building on land that was given as a free will offering to Jesus Christ. It wasn't given to us. It was given to him. And we get to build on that. Wow, what an amazing start. And what an amazing privilege. So that's where we're going as a community.
And I really hope that you will engage and be a part of what God's doing in our midst. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it changes us and changes our perspective and opens our eyes. Lord, help us to act upon your word and to be transformed into the image of Christ to accomplish your purposes in this world. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.